Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hey, Carla. Hi, Michael. How you doing, girl? You know, it has been a good week. So we It's had only a... been a day into the yes. week. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it all the better. Plus, it's turkey week. Yeah. Um, so lots of leave, vacation, your favorite co-host turns 40. I was going to say someone <laughs> just had a party this past weekend in preparation for the big four. Oh, did you have a good time? I had such a good time. So for all of our listeners, um, my family and friends threw a 90s 40th celebration, and it was good and it was a smaller group of friends and my immediate family. It was everything I wanted it to be and more. So it turned out really well. And I'm okay with turning 40. We had an amazing time at the party. I went as ironic 90s grunge, had the acid wash jeans, had the leather jacket, had the flannel wrapped around my waist. But instead of a plain white t-shirt, I definitely wore some Britney Spears because, you know, obvi. It's Britney, bitch. It's Britney, bitch. I wore a mushroom psychedelic shirt, and I had my little hair pieces out, and some All daisy clips. All the barrettes clips. and everything yeah. felt so quintessentially 90s, Carla. It's so funny, because the 90s are back, so like the fashion is very there, but everybody came, my sister-in-law came in like the red Britney jumpsuit. It was so fun, and even my little nieces was in like... A big Papa shirt and a Nirvana shirt. It was fun to see everybody and just really appreciate everybody doing that. So it was good. What are you yep. guys doing for Turkey Day? So it stays pretty small at our house. Just doing a vegetarian lasagna because we don't, neither of us like particularly love traditional Thanksgiving meal shenanigans. We feel like you get the same meal again at Christmas. So we do something a little bit different. Last year we made some really nice cocktails and just did yeah veggie lasagna and had a, a dance party a concert that night to our to ourselves so thanksgiving will be small but christmas we'll see more of the family and all of that shenanigans i love that so when i'm tired of cooking all day and my family's getting my nerves i'll be up here for in time for the concert come on over girl come <laughs> on over so this is our second episode talking about the Swan Street murders. Every time I think about this case, I still cannot get over what happened. Like it just doesn't, I have said over and over again, like someone please make it make sense. Yep. Because it just doesn't. And I feel like you did a really good job of explaining how the crime scene looked. We got to listen to the 911 tape, like all the intricacies about the relationships of the people that were in the house. And how that played out. I can't wait to hear how you're going to lay it out tonight. This really was an insane case. I want to start us off with a recap because like you said, just lots of weird elements of this case that I want to make sure we all have straight in our heads. I'll start by laying out some of our main characters. They are the victim, Robert Wan, who is a DC attorney working for a company called Radio Free Asia. He was married 32 years old and was a New York native that had since moved to DC. There was Joseph Price, who was a friend of Robert's from college. Both of them went to William and Mary for law school, and he was a wealthy and influential attorney known for his activism, specifically in the LGBTQ plus community. There was Victor Zaborski, who was Price's long-term partner and was, of course, living in the house that night, and Dylan Ward, who was a friend of Joseph Price's that over time became uh, Price's and Zaborski's third partner, so they were all cohabitating together as a family in kind of a, a three-way couple or a, or a thruple. 
Some of the details here. On the night of August 2nd in 2006, Robert had arranged to stay at the home of Price, Zaborski, and Ward so that he could meet the night shift workers at Radio Free Asia where he worked, and their house was much closer to his place of work than his own. According to the statements of all three men, Robert arrived at the house at about 10.30. The men claimed that they were awakened sometime around 11.45 p.m. to the sound of a door chime indicating that someone had walked in the door, but the alarm wasn't engaged. So no big alarm, just a little chime letting you know something had gone in or out. This was followed by the sound of three muffled grunts, according to statements from the men, but it was enough to prompt them to get out of bed. When they got out of bed and found their way to the second floor where Robert was staying in their guest room, they found that he had been stabbed. They called an ambulance, and he was pronounced dead by EMTs upon examination of the body. Based on the position of the body, he appeared to have been bound at the time of his death, though it should be noted there were no ligature marks or anything like that on his body to suggest that, just his positioning was really awkward. He had been stabbed three times, once in the heart, once in his right lung, and once in his upper abdomen. Examiners also believed that Juan had been sexually assaulted in some sort of weird way. I liked the term that you said last time. It almost felt like ritualistic. Very strange. Because all of the material found inside of and on Robert's body was his own. Even stranger than what they did find was what they didn't. There was very little blood anywhere. Not on the body, on the bed, on the floor, or anywhere else in their home. Dylan, Zaborski, and Price all claim that the crime was committed by an intruder, but later investigation would reveal that there were no signs of forced entry and the house and its gate appeared secure. Today, I want to lay out a little bit more about what they found in this further investigation of the house and some of the results of the medical examination on Robert's body. I want to follow it up talking about an indictment that was eventually charged against these three gentlemen a couple of years later, followed by a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed by Robert's surviving wife, Catherine. And lastly, I want to end just telling a little bit of Robert's story. Some of what I hope we do well on this podcast is tell the story of the survivors, and unfortunately, in this case, the victim of these crimes. Their stories are really important, and Robert, just to be frank, was a pretty incredible guy, one of those people that you just hate to know have left this world. There's lots of really, really shitty people in this world, and it seems like we genuinely lost a good one when all of this went down back in 2006. I love that, Michael. All right, so let's dive in. I want to start first by reading directly from that affidavit that we referenced in last week's episode. Because I don't want to miss any of the details here, I think it does a really good job laying out the evidence that was found at the scene and helps understand why they came to some of the conclusions that they came to in this case. So this is under a subsection of the affidavit titled Other Evidence from the Scene. The police recovered a number of items from Ward's room. So this is Dylan Ward, the gentleman that had been brought into the relationship a little bit later, lived on the second floor, so he was in the room directly adjacent to Robert Wan when he was murdered, if you believe 
the gentleman's account of the night. How long, do you know how long had he been in a relationship with them? It had been several years. I think okay, four okay. years is what I read. Oh, yeah. okay. And, and for context, I know we didn't talk about it much in the last episode, but these men were in their 40s. So these were not like 20-something men. These were established professionals. And Dylan Ward had come into their life sometime previously, had been friends with Joseph Price specifically for several years, and then eventually it kind of turned into more over time. Okay, makes sense. So they recovered a number of items from Ward's bedroom that caused some alarm in their heads because this included things like racks, shackles, metal and leather collars, wrist and ankle restraints, mouth gags, black spandex hoods, assorted clamps and clips, black clothes pins, an enema kit, a metal penis ring, penis vices, etc. Police also recovered various books relating to inflicting pain on others for the purposes of sexual gratification, inflicting electrical shocks on others for pleasure and pain, enslaving others for sexual gratification, manuals concerning sadomasochistic practices, books dedicated to bondage practices, and the like. Many of these books contained passages highlighted by the reader. Also recovered from the floor of Ward's bedroom was a New Yorker magazine that was opened to an article entitled Late Works, Writers Confronting the End, and begins, Last words recorded and treasured in the days when the deathbed was in the home have fallen from fashion, perhaps because most people spend their final hours in the hospital too drugged to make any sense, end quote. Accompanying the article is a full-page drawing of William Shakespeare lying dead in a bed. His body is shown positioned similar to the way Mr. Wan's body was positioned when it was found. As related above, Ward told police that he was in bed reading this article just before the murder. Ward also informed the police that, among other occupations, he was a writer, a massage therapist, and a direct marketing consultant. After the scene was processed, and items of evidence removed therefrom, a number of specially trained police dogs were brought to the Swan Street residence. A cadaver dog, trained to detect human blood and human remains, was taken through the house. The dog alerted, indicating the presence of human blood or human remains, in two locations. The first location was the lint trap of a dryer located just outside the bathroom by Ward's bedroom on the second floor. The second location was a drain situated within the secured courtyard area in the back of the residence, at the bottom of a set of stairs leading down to the rear entrance into the basement apartment of the residence. So remember, they did have a fourth roommate, a female that lived in the bottom residence who had alerted Price earlier that night that she wouldn't be home that night, that she was staying with a friend. Upon inspection, the drain cover was ajar as if it had been removed and not completely refastened in place. Additionally, there was a hose located in that area that was uncoiled as if it had been used recently and had not been recoiled after its use. These facts are consistent, though not exclusively so, with the following inferential circumstances. An individual could have gone to the stairwell in the enclosed backyard area used the hose to wash off and down the drain any blood that was on his person and clothing, then placed the wet clothing into the clothes dryer, resulting in any remaining blood being cycled through the lint trap of the dryer. Some additional notes from the medical examination as well. 
we already know there were three stab wounds on the victim, and we established near the end of last week's episode there were also some really strange puncture marks that were found all over Robert's body. So in his neck, in his foot, and in in his hand, there were marks that looked like they were made by a needle. They did go back through Robert's medical records to see if he was being prescribed anything or even asked some family and friends if he was taking anything recreationally that would have led to him injecting himself or having someone else inject him. And there was no evidence of that found anywhere. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding what could have happened there. It's really odd the way that the knife incisions were made. They were almost with surgical precision. There were no rough edges there. All of them were made at a consistent angle. It suggests that someone knows what they were doing. But not having any rough edges also suggests that when they were making these incisions, when they were stabbing Robert, he wasn't struggling. Because if you're struggling, there's no way that you're going to be able to make three marks on a body that look really consistent, that are at the same angle, and have those nice straight edges. So immediately when they think of this, they of course thought, okay, were there any drugs in his system? But they ran tests on all of them, barbiturates, amphetamines, everything that they could think of under the sun, and there were none in his system. It is worth noting, and this was made reference to later in the trial, that there are some paralytic drugs and other drugs used for things like anesthesia that dissipate really quickly in the bloodstream, so it's likely that even if they were used and tested for, results would have come back negative because they just would have uh, disappeared far too quickly. All of this led to a situation where officers were leaning really heavily, getting ready to go into a trial and trying to figure out exactly who they can charge with this horrific crime and why. And this is part of what gets a little controversial for me, Carla. There was just a lot of speculation that this had to do with a straight married man coming into the home of three gay men and staying overnight. Literally, if you listen to some of the clips from that interview, they are saying things like what happened here and suggesting pretty overtly that they thought that Robert was living some sort of double life that just absolutely no one was aware of, even though this doesn't connect with anything that his family and friends said about him. I said it last episode, so I'll just say it again. The police need to be less worried with who is having sex with who and more worried about who killed him. Like, I I honestly could care other than it is part of the story that they are here to tell. But if you were to tell me that these were three straight, or excuse me, four straight men and one stayed the night and was weirdly murdered in the night, I would have no less questions than I have because they happened, that three of them happened to be in a relationship together. And I guess like that's the point that keeps coming back is that to me, like why were they even worried other than if they're trying to figure out what happened? But I'm glad because it seemed like later like Robert's family was very clear that like that wasn't the situation. I also think it was like one of the first times he had stayed there at that house. It was the first time. Yeah, Yeah. So it's not like it's not happening on the regular, which, okay, let's for kicks, let's say there was some secret relationship. This would be happening on more than – they'd been friends for a long time. Um, so this would have happened on more than one occasion. And then really at the end of the day, if he was leading some secret life, it still doesn't explain away this crazy murder. I think just the fact that they were more caught up in who was sleeping with who and being confused by their situation, get unconfused. Get unconfused about who killed him. 
that's the part that it doesn't it to me their sexual orientation matters not at all other than you could maybe piece it together but you still can't explain if you're having a consensual relationship with this person why would you murder them yeah how does that escalate to murder right, <laughs> right. and especially how when one of them him? has been friends with this person for years like they run in some of the same circles clearly robert juan has no issue with their sexual orientation and so it doesn't make sense from that perspective. How does it escalate? What is the motive there? Anytime you're talking a crime like this, there had to be a motive. This was a vicious killing that happened in multiple steps. If I'm kind of piecing together this information logically in my head, this person, based on the puncture wounds, might have been injected with something that paralyzed them. Right. They were then in some sort of way sexually abused and or assaulted. They were then stabbed and then completely cleaned up and laid back on the scene as if everything was just fine and pristine. Like, all of this is really, really weird. So it would have needed to escalate not to just some accidental death situation, and there are lots of cases of that. You get a little too excited in the moment, one's heart stops or something, especially following this line of thinking maybe he was on some sort of drugs. Did that, you know, overtake him? Did he have a heart attack? But that's not what happened here. There were multiple steps in this violent crime that it is difficult for me to believe a sexual relationship could have led to, especially when we're insinuating that that sexual relationship would have happened with a good friend of this person for years. And they were in the same field of study. They were passionate about the same things. Where? Where? Why? Why would someone do that? That's what trips me up, is if you are going to kill, like bring someone home and kill them in this way, why would you pick somebody that you are friends with, right? So like you have this personal relationship with. The other thing that kind of trips me up too about Victor and Joe is that they're the ones that called the police and the timing of them calling the police, right? Because if Victor and Joe, and, and maybe I'm getting ahead a little bit, but if Victor and Joe are the ones who committed the murder – then why would they not like wait till next morning? Like, oh, I, f I found him this way. Like, give yourself all night. There's a lot of questions. And to me, none of it has to do with who's having sex with who. Yeah. Well, and I want to get to this. I think you hit on a really good point here. Before we get into some of what was brought forward in the indictment, I do want to read because I, I just think it's worth paying some honor to her, a statement from his surviving wife, Catherine and it was because after this investigation, no charges were levied against these men or anyone in this case for more than two years. So after a year of this had gone on, Kathy Wan was quoted as saying this, Having a murder on your conscience is no small load to carry as you try to live as normal a life as possible. Confessing will be one of the hardest things you can do but also one of the most freeing things you can do for yourself. Which, to me, this woman was just desperate and wanted answers as to who had taken her husband from her. And leading into this indictment, I can only imagine that police felt the pressure of that. Like, you already feel the professional pressure to do your job and to close a case. But also there's this grieving woman that wants answers and, quite frankly, deserves them. It's so interesting, too, that the way that she said what she said that, like, confessing, you know, essentially, like, the truth shall set you free. 
Because I think in her mind, she knew who was ultimately responsible. Now, in what fashion were each of them responsible? But she clearly was looking to place the blame or in her heart felt like the blame was within one of those three people. Well, it was the most logical thing, right? It's the same thing that we saw in the John Bonet case, that there was so much speculation around the family directly because, okay, I'm either to believe an intruder theory, it's the same in this mm-hmm. case, or the path of least resistance here, the most logical and straightforward explanation is someone in that home did it. Period. Hard stop. And she's not a stupid woman. She gets that that's this possibility here. Right. Which is why an indictment later was filed against all three men. It did come more than two years later. It was in October of 2008. And interestingly, it had nothing to do with murder or sexual assault. What the state tried to pin on these three gentlemen was conspiracy, obstructing justice, and tampering with evidence. So let's get into the tampering of evidence just a little bit, because one of the other things that they found in this scene, in addition to all of the BDSM material that I read from the affidavit earlier, was something else in Dylan Ward's closet. And Dylan Ward, you can tell from the offset, is very much the focus of this investigation. He was on the same floor as Robert, and all of this weird sexual paraphernalia also had them reeling. When they searched through his closet, what they found was a three-piece knife set that was like a a knife, a cutting fork, and I think a sharpener that was all in this box. When they pulled out the box, there was one piece of evidence missing, and it was the knife. What's interesting about this is that their tale of the intrusion theory relies on an intruder coming in, and if you believe he was to have come through the back entrance, which is the entrance that Joe Price in our last episode said this could have been the door that they came in. Um, He basically stated, I can almost guarantee that the front door was locked. It's possible that we might have left the back door unlocked. Insinuated that it would not be unusual for them to do that. I think they felt very safe in their neighborhood. Again, this was very high end. They had a seven foot security fence. They had a security system. I mentioned this in the last episode. I just, I think there might've been a false sense of security thing if I'm believing what Joseph Price is trying to sell here. So if an intruder came in that back door, they would have entered into the kitchen area of the home and were to believe then that the intruder took a knife from the kitchen, it was a four-inch chef's knife, made their way up to a second floor and then attacked Robert Wan. And that's the knife that was found in the room when EMTs and law enforcement arrived at the scene. It had been placed on the nightstand, it had some blood on it, but there were some really weird explanations from everyone else in the house as to what was happening. Like at one point, Joe Price had apparently said, and this was more hearsay, this is what I found going down the Reddit webiverse, there was a statement from someone that knew Joe that claimed Joe told them that he pulled the knife out of Robert Wan before EMTs arrived there in an attempt to apply pressure and to to get the wounds to stop bleeding. But A, none of the blood, as we mentioned in the last episode, none of the blood patterning, none of the lack of splatter, any of it, aligns with that whatsoever. But also the blood on the knife didn't make any sense. It was covering the whole length of the blade. It was almost like someone had tried to wipe it off or wipe the towel, the blood that was on the towel on the knife. And I guess Joseph Price tried to give all sorts of weird explanations as to what was going on there, citing that it's possible that they would find some of his DNA 
on that knife, and it was because he had been leaning over the body the entire time before EMTs got there. But that's contradicted by what EMS responders found when they came in the room. Remember that they found Joe Price sitting on the bed next to Dylan Ward, not touching him whatsoever. So some of this isn't adding up. But the real kicker here is that the medical examiner said that the knife that was missing from the box in Dylan Ward's closet actually more closely matches the wounds that were found on Robert Wan's body. See, the wounds on Robert Wan's body were four to five inches deep. And the knife that was from the kitchen was only a four-inch knife, while the knife that would have been in Dylan Ward's box was a five-inch knife. So things definitely feeling a little bit suspect when they start looking at Dylan Ward in light of that. I guess the other thing, like I've thought about it all week, is that if you were laying down and someone stabbed you, so let's say that you're completely incapacitated. Yeah. And something stabbed you. I still cannot get it out of my mind why you were not bleeding everywhere. Yep. Like, why were you not? And like, I've, I mean, I have went down some subreddit threads. Like, people have said things like snake's venom or like things like that that make your blood coagulate. And so that could be why, you know, like maybe there was some type of injection that made, because I still cannot get over how you were laying there. And what other thing really makes me wonder is like I know the paramedics like they knew that he was dead but they never said like was he in rigor mortis how far along was he right and like the true like his true time of death according to the medical examiner which I know like even that I mean that you know there's some science behind it but it's not a perfect science but those are the questions that I know a lot of people are still unanswered and you know, I don't know if it's because it didn't come out in the indictment and so the police are still holding on to some of that information, but it I, it still just blows my mind. And I think that if listeners, if you don't take anything away from that, like how strange that is. And it, I think, is what they were trying to lead the court to by doing this tampering with evidence thing. Mm-hmm. So the knife... They made a claim in their individual and collective statements that they thought the intruder left the house with the knife, which just feels really convenient, right? So they even tried to kind of backpedal and say, well, we're not even positive that the knife that you found there was the murder weapon. So that was really fishy. But to your point about timing, Carla, remember that the gentleman claimed that they were awoken by the sound of a chime followed by three grunts. Well, some of the neighbors, remember this is a townhome. It's attached. You're sharing walls with other people. I remember apparently the best walls in construction history. I have, yeah, because apparently they didn't hear an intruder go up or downstairs right. and someone violently murder someone else. Or in the, the person house. across the hallway from them. Just fascinating stuff. But I think more intriguing is that there is a bit of a timing issue here. So the neighbors claim to have also heard some grunts slash screams, but they claim to have heard them around 20 minutes sooner than what Joseph Price and Victor Zaborski reported them to police officers. They made it sound as though they had just discovered this when they called 911, but if you're to believe the, I guess, ear witness testimony of some of of the neighbors, that would suggest that the stabbing might have happened 20 minutes before they actually started calling officials to get help. Yeah, and that probably would make more sense for like, how the body was i mean it doesn't necessarily explain away all of the details but the theory in my head it starts to solidify for sure okay so again indictment 
it's around conspiracy, obstructing justice, and tampering with evidence for all of the reasons that we just laid out. Things feel a little bit fishy. To make things even a little bit weirder as we're going into this indictment, all three men chose to waive their right to a jury trial, which seems a little interesting to me. Like we've talked about in previous cases, that is absolutely flipping a coin. There are some downsides to having a jury. You've got to convince all of these people. But what that means is that the other side has to convince all of the people as well. In this instance, all you have to do is convince one person, the judge, that this is either something that absolutely happened or absolutely didn't. So I I found this a little bit interesting Maybe it was a little strategic on Joseph Price's part. Again, he was a a pretty influential lawyer at the time. I don't know what to make of it, but it definitely struck me as weird that they waived that right and decided to have this presided over by just a judge. I am also surprised because of the, the way that the police speculated things about their relationship, the way that the media, I'm sure, portrayed this relationship and how weird that you would then base it on a, I'm guessing, male judge to preside your future rather than 12 people who are coming from 12 different backgrounds. Maybe if you're lucky, there's someone who is also, you know, in the community of LGBTQ+. To me, it is a big risk. Maybe that's where it came to. I I had the thought that perhaps given the times, and it's it's not like it is today, these men were registered domestic partners because getting married as gay men was not an option. This was pre-2015. There were a lot of mentalities around gay relationships that were not as evolved as they are today. So I wonder if that was part of the strategy of this is like, we don't want to leave it up to a jury of people, many of whom may completely disagree with our lifestyle at a really fundamental level, like at a religious belief system level. And those people could con- could conceivably convince the people around them to align with them, where if you have a judge looking at it, it ends up being from the legal perspective. Did they think that that was maybe a little bit safer? Interesting, though, to your point about a male judge, it actually was a female judge. So the oh. Honorable Lynn Leibovitz Give from the DC, DC Superior Court. That's right. <laughs> and she became a pretty big power player after this, and I, I think you'll see why. Um By the way, so no mentions of the sexual assault again or the murder, but the sexual assault piece I thought was interesting because Kathy actually backed that up. I thought for sure that'd be something the family would want them to go after. But all of that seemed to be based around speculation that Robert was living a double life. And Kathy, I'm not going to quote it directly, but basically was saying, that's not him. Anyone that is saying that does not know him. And other friends of Robert's came to the same conclusion, like, he was an open book. He was outright and honest. If this was a piece of his life when he entered the marriage, and remember, he already knew Joseph Price at that point, Kathy felt like she would have known about it, and she didn't. So I, I just found that interesting that she dismissed that as well. But since the investigators seemed to lean so heavily on that, I just was shocked that none of that was brought into this case. I can't believe that the sexual, like, in to me, is a clear assault. I really had to think about this. Yep. Like, I really had to think about how could his own... Carla, is it Thanksgiving? Was it a turkey baster? Yeah, like, like, what happened? How did it get there? I don't know. Like, I really had to think about how that could get there. Like, the stuff around him and even 
on him, like not to get super graphic, but they did find some like on his anus, but then some inside his rectum. So I can even get to a place of like, I mean, stuff okay. grips and leaks. I can even get like outside, but how right. did it get inside? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. Um, and then to say that that was consensual, honestly, like that breaks my heart. And I feel like I understand why his wife made the decision that she made, but ultimately I feel sad that she had to make that decision because yeah. It doesn't like to me. That doesn't sound like they made the right choice there. I it just was fascinating. Ultimately, though, there was heavy suspicion that law enforcement had reached at least some true conclusions in their investigation. They could not prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The Honorable Lynn Lebovitz said this as she exonerated the men of all charges in this indictment. She said, "Quote: It is very probable." that the government's theory is correct, that even if the defendants did not participate in the murder, some or all of them knew enough about the circumstances of it to provide helpful information to law enforcement and have chosen to withhold that information for reasons of their own. Nevertheless, after a lengthy analysis of the evidence, I conclude that the government has failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the essential elements of obstruction of justice or evidence tampering. I can't believe that they couldn't get them on either of those charges. So this is a legal play that you see all the time. The friend that I went to high school with, her murder case, they're doing something very similar. He isn't being held with murder. He's being held with – it has to do with the body. Conspiracy of something, yeah, right? It, yeah, it has to do – and so that is something that they often do, especially if they don't think they can get a murder charge, right? Because – because sometimes you can get them on this. It also is a big, you could take a plea bargain here. You could get something bigger, um, especially if there isn't a strong case. I'm just, I'm honestly, I'm shocked that they couldn't get either on obstruction or tampering with evidence. Because to me, like while there is very circumstantial and very small amounts of evidence in that, I do feel like you probably could prove that. And maybe they were right to not go because I think a jury could have said the same thing. There was a lot of speculation in the Webiverse around this being a little bit of a botched investigation but it's it's interesting to me because it doesn't feel as obvious as in some of our previous cases like 100%. you look at john benet ramsey and it is clear that there were missteps made here. yeah when i look at this one i'm like all right the police officers thoroughly investigated the home they even came back with a cadaver dog they interviewed the witnesses collectively and individually they interviewed all of the people around the the scene that could have been eyewitness or ear witnesses to anything that happened like there is a piece of me other than some really gross biased speculation that obviously robert juan had to be in some sort of sex cult because he went over to see three gay men and straight men just don't do that ever i'm not friends with any straight men carla what what am i saying like we don't we don't play straight men and gay men we don't get along at all just but if i get past the ridiculousness of some of what they were trying to insinuate most of this was good legal law enforcement work it was good investigation so i'm surprised too you couldn't prove any of it and maybe that just truly shows how crazy a case this was and why it's still unsolved today i almost think maybe they should have went to murder so like is this the part where we can talk about like cuckoo conspiracy theories well okay i mean i don't you know what honestly i don't even think we need cuckoo conspiracy theories okay because to me it's very evident that somebody in that house did something right like i cannot say 
without a shadow of a doubt that someone is guilty. Uh, clearly, a court of law said that these people were not guilty of tampering and things like that. However, I will say, I have a hard time believing, capital T true, that three grown men were in a house where a intruder came in. Four grown men. Yeah. yeah there were four right, alive yeah. before the intruder, right? Robert was in there too. Came in and e- the the one that lived across the hallway, I have a very hard time believing that they did not hear anything for this intruder coming through so much so that the neighbor heard something, so much so that Victor and Joe were like, mm, I think we hear something. Yeah. And the other gentleman is like, he's cozily sleeping in his bed. I just, I'm not buying it. So the only thing that kind of plays against and for Dylan Ward in this position, they did find as part of their investigation, I didn't mention this earlier, and it's a good point. I'm glad you prompted this. Uh they did find illegal drugs and evidence of additional illegal drugs, and most of it was centered around Dylan Ward, right? So they found ecstasy and marijuana, which at the time were both illegal. Now marijuana is legal in the district, uh, but ecstasy is still an illicit drug. And so there is a part of me that's just like, you know, was was he drugged? Like, forget this idea of Robert Juan before he was murdered. Is it possible that Dylan went, smoked a bowl, and was just passed the fuck out okay like that is a possibility i can get there in my head i mean i can get there i mean i think i can get there in the head i guess there's a lot of questions there like was he a habitual user like maybe maybe he's not passed out from it you know i just really struggle with the fact that other people outside of that house heard noises the person across the hallway did not hear any noises that someone fully came into that house and also there's just so many inconsistencies about what they said yeah. about the way that they acted like the story does not make sense i'm about to throw another curveball at you too oh lord there's because so many i well so after this ruling from the indictment Kathy Wan, understandably, is still just like well what the fuck i want justice from my husband i want answers for this and as she were to tell it and friends that were close to her, she didn't do this so much for the money, but she put a hefty price tag on it because she wanted some accountability there. She filed a wrongful death suit to the tune of $20 million following the ruling of this indictment against all three of them. To everyone's shock, all three men chose to exercise their Fifth Amendment rights and said that they would not testify. So what happened They there? can't compel them to. They're protected by the Fifth Amendment. So what was the outcome of the court case? So. Of the civil suit? Eventually the suit was settled outside of court for an undisclosed amount. I bet it was. And all of the proceeds went to a foundation in Robert Wan's name. So it didn't even work. Like it, they all took the Fifth and it didn't work. See, that's. Well, it did work. It kept them out of prison. Well, yeah, no. They uh, had to pay some money, but they didn't go to prison. So here's the other thing that I'm, I'm, I'm curious about. There was never murder charges. Nope. So guess what can still be brought up? Yep, it's not a double jeopardy situation. Hmm. And apparently Robert Wan's case is still left open for exactly that reason. Um, now, I think the article that I read from that was as of 2019, so it's possible that it's been closed since then and I've just missed it. But for from what I read, this case is still open, hoping that they can find the person that did this. Yeah, and, and to say that like I can sometimes talk myself out of someone in that house did it, but to me it's very suspicious and i think it's also suspicious in the way that the three 
answered some of the questions some of their stories did not add up and then the way joseph price was speaking for all of them we saw we saw mm-hmm. we saw what i will say though is they they again followed good investigation tactics so when they were in the room interviewing all of them separately they pulled some of the normal tricks here telling you know hey your buddy over here told a different story and none of them budged all of them stuck to their story really well now if you'd been coached though by a joseph price who is a very successful lawyer you know maybe that explains some of it so here was the statement that kathy made after these gentlemen pleaded the fifth and after this whole thing was settled she said quote i am very much at peace with my decision to settle this civil lawsuit Although the defendants repeatedly chose to hide behind the Fifth Amendment, this lawsuit finally forced the defendants to answer questions under oath about their actions on the night of Robert's murder. To me, their silence speaks volumes. I am now prepared to close this chapter and begin a new one, all the while honoring Robert's legacy and the people and causes that he held dear. Bless her heart. So she got no answers at the end of the day. This really feels like a Michelle Obama, like when they go low, we go high sort of situation. None of this played out the way that she would hope for it to. She didn't want to lose her husband. She certainly wanted answers as to a death and just some honesty. And she didn't ultimately get it. I just want to say, too, that her even filing this wrongful death lawsuit against specifically Joseph Price had to have been hard. Because Kathy was close to Joseph, too. They had stayed friends for years. Joseph Price was a pallbearer at Robert Wan's funeral immediately following his death at his wife's request. Mm. At some point, she had to smell the doo-doo badly enough for her to be willing to file the suit against him. And I think that makes it all the more painful that she never got answers from him as to what really happened. Now, there is a part of me that is very, very sympathetic to what those three men must be going through. Like, there is another explanation more than just trying to deceive investigators, trying to deceive the court. And it all rests on, and I kind of alluded to this in the last episode, I wonder if Joseph Price knew exactly what was going down here. Mm -hmm. Knew that immediately this situation of a friend found in the house of three gay men that it was going bad and this was all him protecting himself it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be guilt it could have just been protecting um and it you know if that's the case then eventually the media and the public at large might have even convinced kathy wan of that if they truly didn't do it yeah so we have a a four friend group like there's four of us yeah if one were murdered in the house and the three of us knew that we didn't do it. Yep. We would probably stand in solidarity. Yep. Knowing that we did not do it. No matter how bad it looks. Right. Right. Because it's the truth. So that's the other option here is that it really is the truth. I don't know that we'll ever know. I want to end this episode. I wish that I had more answers for you listeners, but I don't. I really think like we're going to get a deathbed confession. I I hope if, so. If one of them did it, Right. And what you said, I mean, that that's very valid. Maybe none of them did it. I would say if one of them were involved, that Joe Price is doing a deathbed confession. The other thing that I will say about these three men, all of them were upstanding citizens. Yeah. All of them were gainfully employed. None of them had any criminal record, like nothing petty, like nothing worse than a parking ticket or a traffic citation sort of thing, like, or good citizens. And none of them have been convicted of anything since. 
So like it's a very valid point. I mean, and and often like their behavior doesn't seem to. Yeah, and I will say, I mean that that to me is a a very very valid point because the way that he was murdered and the way that the it was cleaned up, it really is indicative to probably someone who has practiced doing this. So for that, yeah. What would this have been if we imagine a world where they did it? Like this was them trying to get away with the perfect murder. And then what? what's the purpose of that? Why do you pick this person that you've been friends with for years to try to do that? Like you clean up the body, you try to make it an impossible case to solve. There were some theories out there in some subreddits that were around the idea of did either – Joseph Price or Robert have enemies because of their job in the law profession. Like my mind goes to Lincoln Lawyer, if any of you have read that book or or watched the movie where, you know, you have someone coming after you because you've made cases that have put people in prison or have made people pay for things. Did one of them have someone that had a vendetta against them and they chose to do this because they knew it would make such a splash? They were trying to ruin lives. It's a possibility, but when I just look at it on its face, it's very confusing. I understand that Kathy Wan wants someone to be accountable for this, and maybe it was them. And if I'm, I'll give my unsolicited feedback on this. I try not to like say I think this person did it, but if anyone in that house did it, I get why they suspect Dylan Ward of doing it. And some of that makes me feel gross too. Like as as a as a gay man, I feel very conflicted about the idea that just because someone is into BDSM and all of that, that's no one's goddamn business. What you do behind closed doors in your bedroom that is not hurting anyone else that is consensual between yourself and someone else in the room, it's none of your damn business. But there is, like, I get it. Like, you're reading this really morbid articles. You have all of these books that are basically about sex torture. Right. And you're seemingly the odd man out you're the person that isn't allowed up into the main bedroom you're the person that was brought into this relationship later and you're the person that ultimately has the closest access to the person that was murdered i didn't even know about any of the other stuff which by the way almost 40 years old i didn't even know that some of that stuff was a thing and the list just went on and on (laughs) i was i was feeling very uncomfortable all of a sudden i know but no but i mean all of that aside like i made him guilty because he didn't wake up while this person was being murdered So, you know. So at the end of all of this, I think what's clear from all of the friends and family that shared testimony about who Robert Wan was, was that he was a really stand-up guy. I mentioned that at the beginning of this episode. So just a little bit about Robert as we close out here. He was born on June 1st in 1974 in Manhattan. He was a fourth-generation Chinese immigrant raised by his parents, William and Amy, in Brooklyn before eventually moving to D.C., of course. He was the oldest of their two sons. He was considered by everyone that was talked to and that I could read interviews from to be a very kind and generous man. He obviously went to a prestigious law college, William and Mary, and he was the president of the student assembly there. Wow. Um, There were several quotes from a friend of his, a lady named Tara Ragone, I think is how you pronounce it, that I found really interesting. So I just wanted to share a couple of tidbits from there because I think it spoke to his character. She said, quote, he kept tabs on his friends. He never looked for recognition. He was always the man behind the curtain making magic. He also had a silly side, end quote. She also recounted some other things about him that he would put change into expired parking meters as he walked down the street. When funds ran out for campus beautification, he bought sod for 
like outside the quads and outside the other housing areas. When other kids were drunk on Saturday nights, he was laying down new sod. Like that's the person that he was. He wasn't out partying. He was trying to beautify the university and make it a better place. She said that when a sculpture of a phoenix on campus was coated in bird droppings, he and some friends went out one night and scrubbed it clean. Robert once learned that retired William and Mary President Davis Young Pascal was living alone near campus, and he was suffering from spinal arthritis, I guess, and was unable to get around very well. So Robert went to see him and liked some of the stories that he was telling. He was sharing stories of his days at college um, and when he was the president of the university. So Robert took it upon himself to bring a few of the undergrads to his house for more weekly visits. It was Robert's version of Tuesdays with Maury. Among William and Mary's traditions was a club called 13 Club. It was a secret society that met to do anonymous acts of overt generosity. It had really started to kind of slow down. They weren't getting a lot of interest. But along with Joe Price, interestingly enough, and some others, Robert really revitalized it. He brought it back to life. Robert was the hub, according to Tarragon, and the glue that kept everyone together. He had a spreadsheet with everyone's birthdays, and he rarely missed sending a card. He was so there for his friends. One of his friends was getting a divorce, and the first call that divorced friend made was to his parents. The second call he made was to Robert, because Robert was that close of a friend. So he also helped that same friend move into his new apartment, and that friend is quoted as saying that Robert pieced me back together. All of this was backed up by Robert's wife, Kathy, that just said that she loved being his wife and that they were truly the best of friends. And maybe the best testament of his character was that the last words that Robert said as he was leaving his house that night to go visit his night shift workers at Radio Free Asia to his wife were, I love you. So that, my friends, is the tragic and just beguiling and confusing and fucked up case of Robert Wan, also known as the Swan Street murder. I will just say that like, I hope if our life is going to end that all of our last messages to our loved ones is I love you. It's so tragic. But I do love the fact that that was his last words. um, Because I know that that's a piece that she'll have always. I just want to say too, like hearing all of these pieces of his character hearing that he was a guy that, you know, scrubbed bird poop off of statues and laid sod for free for his university while other people were out partying. Even if Robert Wan was living a double life, even if he had gone over that night to have some sort of like wilden evening with his friends that he knew would be open to it, he did not deserve to die in this fashion. Like no matter how you cut it, we lost a really beautiful soul too soon. And seemingly, unless we do get that deathbed confession, Carla, we'll never have answers to this. And that makes me really, really sad. So much of the media circle and so much of even investigators tried to lay this on some, air quotes, untraditional lifestyle choices. And ultimately, that has nothing to do with the fact that this was a man, a son, a husband, a friend that was taken from this world too soon in a really horrific way. Absolutely. Thank you guys for joining us. Don't forget to follow us on our socials, Nosy Bees, and let us know what you'd like to hear next.
All right. Bye, bitches. Bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind. Stay curious. But of course, stay nosy. Bitches. Bitches.